Part 2 of Book 3, Chapter 18 of These Twain by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book 3, Chapter 18, Fall. In the middle of the night, Eben kept watch over Auntie Hamps, who was asleep. He sat in a rocking chair with his back to the window and the right side of his face to the glow of the fire. The fire was as effective as the size and form of the grate would allow. It burnt richly red, but its influence did not seem to extend beyond a radius of four feet outwards from its centre. The terrible damp chill of the five towns winter hung in the bedroom like an invisible miasma. He could feel the cold from the window, which was nevertheless shut, through the shawl with which he had closed the interstices of the back of the chair, and though he had another thick shawl over his knees, the whole of his left side felt the creeping attack of the insidious miasma. The thermometer, which he had found and which lay on the night table, five yards from the fire, registered only fifty-two degrees. His expelled breath showed in the air. It was as if he were fighting with all resources against frigidity and barely holding his own. In the half-light of the gas, still screened from the bed by the bonnet box and the Bible, he glanced round amid the dark meadows at the mean and sinister ugliness of the historic chamber, the secret nest and withdrawing place of Auntie Hamps, and the real asceticism of her life and of the life of all her generation almost smote him. Half a century earlier, such a room had represented comfort. In some details, as for instance in its bed, it represented luxury. And in half a century, Auntie Hamps had learnt nothing from the material progress of civilization but the use of the hot water bag. Her vanished and forgotten parents would have looked askance at the enervating luxuriousness of her hot water bag, unknown even to the crude, wistful boy Edwin on the mantelpiece. And Auntie Hamps herself was wont, as it were, to atone for it by using the still tepid water therefrom from her morning toilet, instead of having truly hot water brought up from the kitchen. Edwin thought, Are we happier for these changes brought about by the mysterious force of evolution? and answered very emphatically, Yes, we are. He would not for anything have gone back to the austerities of his boyhood. He rocked gently to and fro in the chair, excited by events and by the novel situation, and he was not dissatisfied with himself. Indeed, he was aware of a certain calm complacency, for his common sense had triumphed over Maggie's devoted silly womanishness. Maggie was for sitting up through the night. She was anxious to wear herself out for no reason whatever but he had sent her to bed until three o'clock, promising to call her if she should be needed. The exhausted girl was full of sagacity, save on that one point of martyrdom to the fullest, apparently with her a point of honour. For the sake of the sensation of having martyrised herself utterly, she was ready to imperil her fitness for the morrow. She secretly thought it was unfair to call upon him, a man, to share her fatigues. He regarded himself as her superior in wisdom, and he was relieved that anyone so wise and balanced as Edwin Clayhanger had taken supreme charge of the household organism. Restless, he got up from the chair and looked at the bed. He had heard no unusual sound therefrom, but to excuse his restlessness he had said, Suppose some change had occurred and I didn't notice it. No change had occurred. Auntie Hamps lay like a mite, like a baby forlorn, senile and defenceless, amid the heaped pillows and coverings of the bed. 
Within the deep gloom of the canopy and the overarching curtains, only her small, soft face was alive. Even her hair was hidden in the indentation made by the weight of her head in the pillows. She was unconscious, either in sleep or otherwise, he could not tell how. And in her unconsciousness, the losing but obstinate fight against the power which was dragging her over the edge of eternity still went on. It showed in the apprehensive character of her breathing, which made a little momentary periodic cloud above her face, and in the uneasy muscular movements of the lips and jaws, and in the vague noises in her throat. A tremendous pity for her re-entered his heart, almost breaking it, because she was so beaten and so fallen from the gorgeousness of her splendour. Even Minnie could have imposed her will upon Auntie Hamps now. Each hour she weakened. He had no more resentment against her on account of Minnie, no accusation to formulate. He was merely grieved, with a compassionate grief, that Auntie Hamps had learned so little while living so long. He knew that she was cruel only because she was incapable of imagining what it was to be Minnie. He understood. She worshipped God under the form of respectability, but she did worship God. Like all religious votaries, she placed religion above morality. Hence her chicane, her inveterate deceit and self-deceit. It was with a religious aim that she had concealed from him the estrangement between herself and Clara. The unity of the family was one of her major canons, as indeed it was one of Edwin's. She had a passion for her nephew and nieces. It was a grand passion. Her pride in them must have been as terrific as her longing that they and all theirs should conform to the sole ideal that she comprehended. Undeniably there was something magnificent in her religion, her unscrupulousness in the practice of it, and the mighty consistency of her career. She had lived. He ceased to pity her, for she towered above pity. She was dying, but only for an instant. He would smile at his aunt's primeval notions of a future life, yet he had to admit that his own notions, though far less precise, could not be appreciably less crude. He and she were anyhow at one in the profound and staggering conviction of immortality. Enlightened by that conviction, he was able to reduce the physical and mental tragedy of the deathbed to its right proportions as a transiency between the heroic past and the inconceivable future. And in the stillness of the room and the stillness of the house, perfumed by the abnegation of Maggie and the desolate woe of the ruined Minnie whom the clayhangers would save, and in the outer stillness of the little street with the Norman church tower sticking up out of history at the bottom of its slope, Edwin felt uplifted and serene. He returned to the rocking chair. She's asleep now in some room I've never seen, he reflected. He was suddenly thinking of his wife. During the previous night, lying sleepless close to her while she slept soundly, he had reflected long and with increasing pessimism. The solace of Hilda's kiss had proved fleeting. She had not realised, he himself was then only realising little by little, the enormity of the thing she had done. What she had deliberately and obstinately done was to turn him out of his house. No injury that she might have chosen could have touched him more closely, more painfully, for his house, to him, was sacred. Her blundering with the servants might be condoned, but what excuse was it possible to find for this precipitate flight to London, involving the summary ejectment from the home of him who had created the home 
and for and by whom the home chiefly existed. True, the astounding feat of wrong-headedness had been aided by the mere chance of Maggie's calling. Capricious women were always thus lucky. Maggie's suggestion and request had given some afterglow of reason to that mad project. But the justification was still far from sufficient, and the odious idea haunted him that, even if Maggie had not called with her tale, Hilda would have persisted in her scheme all the same. Yes, she was capable of that. The argument that George's eyes, of whose condition she had learnt by mere hazard, could not wait until domestic affairs were arranged, was too grotesque to deserve an answer. Lying thus close to his wife in the dark, he perceived that the conflict between his individuality and hers could never cease. No diplomatic devices of manner could put an end to it. And he had seen also that as they both grew older and developed more fully, the conflict was becoming more serious. He assumed that he had faults, but he was solemnly convinced that the faults of Hilda were tremendous, essential and ineradicable. She had a faculty for acting contrary to justice and contrary to sense, which was simply monstrous. And it had always been so. Her whole life had been made up of impulsiveness and contumacy in that impulsiveness. Witness the incredible scenes of the strange Dartmoor episode, all due to her stubborn irrationality. The perspective of his marriage was plain to him in the night, and it ended in a rupture. He had been resolutely blind to Hilda's peculiarities, dismissing incident after incident as an isolated misfortune. But he could be blind no more. His marriage was all of a piece, and he must and would recognise the fact. The sequel would be a scandal. Well, let it be a scandal. As the minutes and hours passed in grim meditation, the more attractive grew the lost freedom of the bachelor, and the more ready he felt to face any ordeal that lay between him and it. And, just as it was occurring to him that his proper course was to have fought a terrific, open, decisive battle with her in front of both Maggie and Inkpen, he had fallen asleep. Upon awaking, barely in time to arouse Hilda, he knew that the mood of the night had not melted away, as such moods are apt to melt when the window begins to show a square of silver grey. The mood was even intensified. Hilda had divined nothing. She never did divine the tortures which she inflicted on his heart. She did not possess the gumption to divine. Her demeanour had been amazing. She averred that she had not slept at all. Instead of cajoling, she bullied. Instead of tacitly admitting that she was infamously wronging him, she had assumed a grievance of her own without stating it. Once she had said discontentedly about some trifle, you might at any rate, as though the victim should caress the executioner. She had kissed him at departure, but not as usual effusively, and he had suffered the kiss in enmity. And after an unimaginable general upset and confusion in which George had shown himself strangely querulous, she had driven off with her son, unconscious, stupidly unaware, that she was leaving a disaster behind her. And last of all, Edwin, solitary, had been forced to perform the final symbolic act, that of locking him out of his own sacred home. The affair had transcended belief. All day at the works his bitterness and melancholy had been terrible, and the works had been shaken with apprehension, for no angry menaces are more disconcerting than those of a man habitually mild. Before evening he decided to write to his wife from Auntie Hamps, a letter cold, unanswerable, crushing, 
that would confront her unescapably with the alternatives of complete submission or complete separation. The phrases of the letter came to his mind. He would see he was master. He had been full of the letter when he entered Auntie Hamp's lobby. But the strange tone in which Maggie had answered his questions about the sick woman had thrust the letter and the crisis right to the back of his mind, where they had uneasily remained throughout the evening. And now, in the rocking chair, he was reflecting, She's asleep in some room I've never seen. He smiled. Such a smile, candid, generous and affectionate, as was Hilda's joy. Such a smile as Hilda dwelt on in memory when she was alone. The mood of resentment passed away, vanished like a nightmare at dawn, and, like one of his liverish headaches, dispersed suddenly after the evening meal. He saw everything differently. He saw that he had been entirely wrong in his estimate of the situation and of Hilda. Hilda was a mother. She had the protective passion of maternity. She was carried away by her passions, but her passions were noble, marvellous, unique. He himself could never, he thought, humbled, attain to her emotional heights. He was incapable of feeling about anything or anybody as she felt about George. The revelation concerning George's eyesight had shocked her, overwhelmed her with remorse, driven every other idea out of her head. She must atone to George instantly. Instantly she must take measures, the most drastic and certain, to secure him from the threatened danger. She could not count the cost till afterwards. She was not a woman in such moments. She was an instinct, a desire, a ruthless purpose. And as she felt towards George, so she must feel, in other circumstances, towards himself. Her kisses proved it, and her soothing hand when he was unwell. Mrs. Hampson said, Hey, dear, what a good mother dear Hilda is. A sentimental outcry. But there was profound truth in it, truth which the old woman had seen better than he had seen it. I dare say there never was such a mother, unless it's Clara. Hyperbole. And yet he himself now began to think that there never could have been such a mother as Hilda. Clara, too, in her way, was wonderful. Smile as you might, these mothers were tremendous. The mysterious sheen of their narrow and deep lives dazzled him. For the first time, perhaps, he bowed his head to Clara. But Hilda was far beyond Clara. She was not only a mother, but a lover. Would he cut himself off from her loving? Why? For what? To live alone in the arid and futile freedom of a tertius ingpen? Such a notion was fatuous. Where lay the difficulty between himself and Hilda? There was no difficulty. How had she harmed him? She had not harmed him. Everything was all right. He had only to understand. He understood. As for her impulsiveness, her wrong-headedness, her bizarre ratiocination, he knew how to accept them, for was he not a philosopher? They were indeed part of the incomparable romance of existence with these prodigious and tantalising creatures. He admitted that Hilda in some aspects transcended him, but in others he was comfortably confident of his own steady, conquering superiority. He thought of her with the most exquisite devotion. He pictured the secret tenderness of their reunion amid the conventional bloom of Auntie Hab's deathbed. He was confident of his ability to manage Hilda, at any rate in the big things, for example the disputed points of his entry into public activity and their removal from Trafalgar Road into the country. The sturdiness of the mail inspired him. 
At the same time, the thought of the dark mood from which he had emerged obscurely perturbed him, like a fearful danger past. And he argued to himself with satisfaction, and yet not quite with conviction, that he had yielded to Maggie, and not to Hilda, in the affair of the journey to London, and that therefore his masculine marital dignity was intact. And then he started at a strange sound below, which somehow recalled him to the nervous tension of the house. It was a knocking at the front door. His heart thumped at the formidable muffled noise in the middle of the night. He jumped up and glanced at the bed. Auntie Hamps was not wakened. He went downstairs, where the gas which he had lighted was keeping watch. End of Part 2 of Book 3, Chapter 18